Thank you for listening to the Writers Guild of Alberta podcasts. The following episode was recorded in 2020 as part of the WGA's online reading series, sponsored by the Rosé Foundation. The audio quality may differ from recording to recording. We want to thank the authors and hosts for their permission to share these audio-only episodes with you, and thank the Rosé Foundation again for their generous support. And welcome to the Writers Guild of Alberta online reading series. I'm Sue Farrell-Holler. And tonight our guest is Grand Prairie author Annette Lapointe, who is going to tell us about her new book, which is called, and this is The Cure. As well as answering your questions and mine, she's going to give us a sneak peek at what's between the covers. Now, Annette has not always lived in Grand Prairie. She's lived in rural Saskatchewan, Quebec City, St. John's, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, where she earned her PhD in contemporary literature, and in South Korea. She now makes her home in Treaty 8 territory on the traditional lands of the Beaver people and teaches at Grand Prairie Regional College. In her copious free time, she edits <laughs> the Waggle magazine. Her previous publications include a short story collection called You Are Not Needed Now and two acclaimed novels, Stolen and Whitetail Shooting Gallery. Her new novel published by Anvil Press is called And This Is The Cure. So welcome Annette and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. It's really great to have you here tonight. And uh, probably more than anyone who's watching, I'm just dying to hear about your book. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm happy to tell you whatever you want to know, except the ending. Give us, give us a bit of a teaser and tell us what it's about. Oh, goodness. Um, well, the short, for the my one sentence version of this has long been, uh, and this is the cure is the story of an old order Mennonite girl who runs away from home and joins a riot girl punk band. But that's only one aspect of it because the novel actually begins with her in middle age, uh, returning to Winnipeg following the death of her ex-husband to regain custody of her strange daughter who's 11 years old. Uh, at that point, she is a host for Canadian Public Radio, a distinguished arts commentator, and a bit of a mess, who's about to have to be a responsible adult in her private life for the first time in her life. That sounds like quite a plot. <laughs> Oh, I left out the part about rescuing uh, runaway members of conservative religious organizations going on tour, running away to France, uh, at least one kidnapping. Um, oh, and, and romantic encounter on the doorstep of a psychiatrist. Lovely. <laughs> Why don't you uh, give us a little bit of a, a reading and whet our appetite just a little bit more? Okay. Uh, these are the opening pages uh, from a chapter which is called Adivan Seas. Okay, sounds great. We're all ready for you. <clears throat> I had to fly home in the middle of the night. The last flight from Pearson to Winnipeg came in at 11.56 p.m. And by then I'd been in transit for something like five hours. 
Six and a half if I included the airport traffic in Toronto, sitting in the back of a cab playing elaborately cheerful Pashtun pop music. Quiet airline agents have escorted me to the special screening line reserved for the elderly, the disabled, and for emotionally fragile minor celebrities. I'd walked up with something like confidence, then crumpled when I realized I hadn't sorted my purse out for air travel. It was loaded with the small, basic contraband items that kept me locked in conversational loops while my flight boarded and called for me a second time and then left without me. They confiscated my jackknife and screwdriver set and a nail care kit loaded with metal edges, two lighters, and a handful of loose pills half crushed against the lining that I might have been able to persuade them were antihistamines or something else innocuous that hadn't come into my position into my possession at 2 a.m. at a concert last summer, which was the last time I'd carried that purse before the current moment. Through it all, they were so polite. I was treated with the respect of a prosperous white woman, even as they called up the police records that included my arrests, my two arrests for indecent exposure, my unprosecuted but well-known assistance of runaway cultists, the bar fights and riot girl battles and mental health reports after I'd stood on the railing above the CP rail yards in Winnipeg and suggested that I might be better off neither a mother nor a living woman. No one commented on that. The nine respectable years since working for public broadcasting had gradually turned me into a respectable figure for a polite nation. They asked me to sit down. There might be a short delay. And I cried. The airline agent was still hovering wordless at my elbow. I stared at the small number of extra pills in my purse and wondered if I could level out in time to fly. If I took everything right then, before it was confiscated, I might have a chance. I'd need more though later. And no one was home to bring me more. My husband was still out of the country, coming back on his own sleepwalk itinerary of boats and airports and five days in Miami. That long then before he could come back and find my pills and express ship them to me. So I tried to explain very calmly that I hadn't been planning on flying, but my possessions, my pills were important and I couldn't just throw them away. Only what came out was, and this is all going to be on the fucking news tomorrow. Like it's happening to somebody I don't even know. I missed the flight, but they let me take my pills. And the doctor gave me two Ativan out of her own purse and wrote me an authorization for them on the back of her business card. Katza agents scanned my shoulder bag carefully and determined that it was so clean that it probably wasn't even mine. It wasn't, but I didn't confirm that. I needed those clothes. The brush, the lady speed stick stuffed down the side. The airline workers hissed. My phone buzzed so many times that the agents had to ask me calmly if I wouldn't mind turning them off, turning it off. I asked them to please just call and confirm. I didn't know the number of the Winnipeg Police Service. I thought that contacts wise, that would probably do. They did call. And then they called someone to put my contraband in storage until my return trip. Agents had been working for me with the fervor of people who saw a public relations coup building around them. Katza released me. They held my next plane. But there were so many pictures. If I lived in a bigger country, in an American or British version of the world, it would have been tabloid fodder. Here is Alison Winter, teary eyeliner, black will coat smeared with city grime, sharp-edged hair and makeup still in place from a photo shoot I'd done earlier in the day to promote The Cure, my radio show. 
studio girls had carved out an on-camera version of me that matched the radio voice. I like your show, the security agent said. I podcast it while I'm commuting. Thank you. That means a lot. What's on tomorrow? I stared at her, passed at her at my own reflection in the security glass. Um, a, be a best of it'll have to be. I won't be back by morning. Right. I guess that was obvious. I have to get my plane. Good to pause there. Excellent. Thank you so much. For those who are just tuning in, I'm in conversation with author Natalie Point, who is telling us about her new novel, and this is The Cure. We're always curious about those who are watching this program, so feel free to type in your location in the comments section on the right-hand side of your screen. It's also where you can post questions for Annette. So I have a bit of a question for you here. Okay. <laughs> In the passage you just read, um, this is a woman with a definite past, and she's pretending to be someone who she isn't necessarily. And I'm wondering, did this story start with her, or did it start with a situation? Oh, the story started very much with her. She's Alison Winter, and she's... As a character, she emerged very early, although if I'm honest, the very first seed of this novel was, in fact, a situation, uh, one that comes up much later in the book, uh, of Allison and her 11-year-old daughter uh, in the kitchen while Allison's cooking, and A, her daughter finds all the food that she cooks disgusting. I believe she's making artichoke pizza. The child is like, no. And also the child wants her to know that her taste in music is embarrassing. And I thought, my God, we go from cool to pathetic so fast. Mm -hmm. And so then I tried to imagine the coolest woman that I could, the one who would be ferocious, the not quite a rock star, but very much an outsider, somebody who children wouldn't easily reject. And then I thought, so... Would she be admired by an adolescent? No, not, not remotely. Nothing but embarrassment. There's probably nothing uh, more humbling than being a parent <laughs> because everything you ever thought about yourself is suddenly just <laughs> gone. <laughs> so good place to start, good place to start. So um, when did you start writing this story and how long did it take? And all of that sort oh, of great detail. Oh, heavens. This one goes back a long way. I'm thinking to about 2014 or 15. Okay. Um, it started out and it rolled really hard for a while. And then I just hit a disruption in my own life that meant that I couldn't work on it for a while. So it got stuffed in a box while I finished my short story collection, You Are Not Needed Now. And I was able to return to it after that. And I found that Allison, my protagonist, came back very quickly. I still recognized her. I knew what her motivation was. And it was surprisingly easy to pick up given the amount of time that had passed. 
That's excellent because sometimes when you, you do put something away, and that's always the advice is that when you write something, you put it away for a while and then come back to it to edit. But sometimes when you do put away a manuscript, it is like, I don't know if it's that the writer has changed and become a different person and the character has lost some gloss. But with this case, it sounds like she continued to gestate in the time that you were away from her. Um, it's interesting because Allison is not someone I'd be comfortable being friends with. I'm a very, I, uh, people who know me know that I'm actually a very quiet and reclusive person and not at all the sort of person who gets into bar fights. But as a character, she was fully realized very early. And so, yeah, she, she was just kind of sitting there going, mm, are we ever going to finish this? Or are you just going to leave me here? sitting next to this corpse in a bathtub. Oh, I've said too much. <laughs> uh, and we are talking um, about a manuscript that's a corpse, yes? <laughs> no, no, oh, Allison was sitting next to a corpse that was in a bathtub. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> it, it was not a metaphor. <laughs> not at all, okay. Well, that uh, just uh, makes me a little bit more, more nervous. <laughs> Curious well, as to how she gets there. If it's any comfort, um, everybody, who's going to die that way will be dead by the time the book starts. Okay, and so you uh, tend to have corpses laying around quite a bit in your first chapter? That's how I started my first novel. <laughs> it worked well, so I thought I'd do it again. First well, kill the character, then find out what happened. That's an interesting thing to do. <laughs> it sounds like it's sort of dark, like if you do, um, I always kind of worry about people who, who kill characters off in um, strange ways. And I kind of wonder, like, do you sleep at night or do you? Oh yes, very well. Uh, all the dark stuff comes out over here. Um, I think it's partly just that the world is very frightening sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, well, I talk as though people are getting killed left and right. My characters die in ways that people do die, not in the with the elaborate murders of murder mysteries, but because of family conflicts of mental illness, because of accidents, because of the reasons that I have lost friends and family and acquaintances. And I'm interested not so much in the deaths as what effect those deaths have on people's lives and relationships and how people go on after that. And I think that's a very interesting piece is that it's what a death sets into motion, um, whether physically, emotionally, or a combination of both. So a very interesting uh, place to go as a writer. Um, do you get a lot of inspiration? You were mentioning you get some like from family and friends and situations, but also from the news that seems to be full of that. Um, in the case of this novel, there are definitely news-based influences. Um, people who read it will, I think, recognize them fairly quickly. Um, one of the things that launches Allison's second career as a radio host is a fictionalized version of something that took place in about the middle of the last decade uh, here in Canada. And people who read it will be like, oh, right. Yeah, that, that was upsetting. 
Right. And I think that's another piece of it is that uh, we do hear of all of these kinds of things in the news, but then we forget. But there are all those people that who have been impacted by a situation that we'll never forget and their lives will never be the same. So. And the life waste plant is a very small country. Mm -hmm. Big in area, but small in population. And actions have ripples that go across provinces and different communities. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So do you have another piece ready that you would like to share I do. <laughs> I have um, one of Allison's retrospective moments of explaining how she got from her origins to where she is now. Uh, to fully understand this, you need to know that Hannah is her daughter's name. Okay. Excellent. Okay. And this, this is from chapter seven. Okay. I'll let you go with it. Okay. Like Hannah, I wasn't an orphan. Although after a fashion, I suppose I orphaned myself. I found an official representative of the state and I expressed that I would not be returning to my family. And I had a perfect weapon in this campaign. They made me get married. I'm, I'm 15 and they, they made me get married. That was not supposed to be possible. There was a law in the books that you had to have parental consent marry if you were under 18 that a family court judge was required to sign off on an order if you were under 16. Still, before the internet, looking up details like that was a problem. The regional library might not have had a set of complete rules, and the church might not have. The church might say, yes, you can and should get married. And I might have said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yes, I want to. I want to get married. It might have been my idea. But you don't have legal volition at 15. You can't be the person who ignores the rules, who adjusts Allison's birthday when copying information onto the marriage certificate, makes her two years older, not a legal adult, but close enough. That sort of crime brings not only social workers, but the police. And I hadn't expected that. I wanted to leave, but I had no experience at running away from home. I'd read about it, but all the accounts were either fantasies of a not-quite-pastoral quasi-England or urban narratives with cities that swallowed little girls. So, you can run away like Jane Eyre, across the moors and meet your cousin, learn German, and not marry him, even though he's perfectly nice, if a little imperialistic in his intentions for the Indian subcontinent. I could have run away across the fields and met my own cousins, would have given me dinner and driven me home, and my parents would have been very reasonable about it, told me that if I needed to go somewhere, they would be happy to drive me. Except they'd gone off on their own missionary ventures, though not to India. They'd packed up to a one and left without me. The room the police interviewed me in felt like a classroom. A blonde woman with gorgeous shoes talked to me softly for a couple of hours about Ethan, my husband, and my baby, and how much I understood about sex, really. So I told her about childbirth, about working with my mother, the midwife, to deliver babies on two continents, about the baby my mother had with me in lurking attendance. A year later, I'd probably have given her different answers. By then, I'd read The Complete Joy of Sex, complete with the details about naval sex and how to do it on a motorcycle. 
In the end, she studied me like she wasn't sure whether to lock me in a box and, and I said, please don't make me go home with them. Do you think they're going to hurt you? I thought, lie. I couldn't imagine anyone believing me. Ethan's parents were as wholesome as anyone I could imagine. And they'd already successfully raised kids who could speak for them. They'd agreed to take care of me since I couldn't travel with my parents, since I was pregnant, since I'd married their son, since I'd walked my whore body into their house. I said, if you send me back, I'll run away again. I said, if you send me back, I'll kill myself. One of those. I'm fairly sure I said one of those things. And I'm going to stop there. Okay, you've got me. <laughs> There's nothing like a one character manipulating the answers to to get uh, what you want. That uh, how's me going? So just a reminder, um, if you would like to ask any questions of Annette, please type them in and let us know uh, what you are dying to know. So have you been a writer all of your life? Oh, an interesting question. I don't remember being a writer when I was very small. I do remember in grade five, my grandfather, who was a determined garage seller, brought me a portable typewriter in one of those suitcase boxes that snapped over the top and said, here, try this. <laughs> and I thought, I'm a writer now. And it really took, I banged away on that thing. I wrote stories about my classmates. I wrote stories about Star Trek. I wrote stories about ponies. And eventually I even got a computer and the typing on that was so much less work. Those old manual typewriters, you had to hit them so hard. I know, I actually have one in my basement and I, I think it would be really fun to give one to someone like you. <laughs> Make you write a, write a novel. You, you can't quite see it because of the shadows, but over my that shoulder, next to the plant, is actually my great grandfather's typewriter. Oh, how interesting! You never know what's going to spark a kid, right? That so I would say that you've been a writer all your life. I think you could, you know, you close been enough. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely been a reader since I was very small. When I was three or four. Uh, my godfather gave me a Dick and Jane reader and my dad sat down with me while I read it through. And at the end, he declared there, now you can read, uh, which I suppose was just their way of telling me that I didn't need training wheels anymore right. because I'd been, you know, reading loudly with my parents for some time. And they were like, just tell her she can read and she'll stop bugging us. And it's true. They didn't see me again for years. Well, you know, there's there are that's just another advantage of uh, teaching children how to read and to love books. <laughs> that's kind of good. Are you still a big reader? Oh yes. Um, since I've been working from home, which is since March, I read the great big pile of books next to my bed, which was oh about fourteen books high. Wow. Um, I haven't read all the books in my house, but if I did, that would be a real disappointment. Yeah. I, I, I read pretty steadily every day, every day, all day when I can. 
Yeah, great. Uh, so can you, this is a question that's come in from uh, Watcher. Uh, can you speak a bit about the depth of characters? I'm interested to hear if there is a specific message about humans you are trying to portray. Oh, I try to, if I'm going to include a character, I try to make them a whole person. I try not to have throwaway characters. Um, I like to think about what the character, who the characters are and what they want. Uh, Allison, of course, is the most developed character in the novel. Um, one of Allison's struggles is that she has absolutely no idea what she wants. Uh, she is also bipolar. Uh, that's not her defining feature, but it does mean that her her actions occasionally go off the rails. Uh, she is manipulative, but she's somebody who's had to shift for herself since she was quite young. And I think to the extent that she wants one clear thing, it's that she would like to be able to keep her life under control. It's not going well, but she does keep trying. But I also wanted Hannah to be a whole person, somebody who was 11, who had experienced terrible loss, who had always known this woman was her mother, but hadn't been close to her, and who is really thrown out into the world, accompanied by an adult, but not being properly parented. Uh, Allison's partner, Eden, is someone I like a lot. Uh, like her, he's mentally ill. They take fairly good care of each other, but he has a whole other life. And this is the thing that sometimes other characters aren't present because they just have other things going on. So that a, is that a useful answer? I think it's a very useful answer. <laughs> For me, it, it, I mean, I did start with that scene, but it's very much characters first. Mm -hmm that if, if it's not true to them, I can't make it happen. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting to have that, to have that full roundedness of your characters and to really to know all of those little background pieces. Do you kind of go into it knowing that uh, or does your character sort of develop these ticks and things that you um, kind of add in as you go along? Um, in the pauses of writing, when I'm maybe not blocked, but not sitting at the keyboard. I keep notebooks and I make notes about the different characters, ideas I have for them, experiences, conversations that they might have that don't necessarily belong in this book because they aren't relevant to the plot, but that tell me more about who they are. And uh, although this is the longest book I've ever written, it is down between a quarter and a third in total length from its first full or first or second draft simply because there were so many moments between the characters, so much background that simply was bogging down the story. Right. But yeah, everybody has huge histories here. That's good because that means that you also already have material for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't tempt me. I'd love to see what happens when Hannah grows up. Well, well, and I think that's just an interesting piece that you just finish one and you, you fall in love with the character and, and want to know more and, and you do continue to live with them. So that's good. I'm glad she continues to inhabit you. Oh, very much. Uh, so another question from a viewer, and it is how does teaching influence your writing? 
Oh, enormous, enormously. Um, I do teach creative writing at Grand Prairie Regional College. And I love that because it's always an ongoing conversation. And when I talk about process, I talk about my process. And sometimes they have questions or ideas. Uh, the novel I'm working on now, they renamed for me. They told me my title was terrible and then offered me a couple of alternatives. And I was like, no, that's fair. That is much, much better. Um, I also read a lot looking for things that the students will like. And so that that brings in ideas, but also just talking about literature yeah. with um, with people who are genuinely interested in it, I think is the most engaging thing I can do. And I don't think I could write without teaching because I wouldn't have that constant outside input. Plus, of course, I meet a lot of people, which is really useful. Yeah, you described yourself as kind of a, a bit of a recluse or a hermit or something that's very quiet, but you don't come across that way to me at all. I think you probably just talk to people all day. I, I do, but in between those sessions, I lock myself in a quiet room by myself. Right. And the students will say, we need to keep talking to you after class. I said, I'm sorry, I can't people anymore. I have to go sit in the dark. Yeah, anyway. classic introvert. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, sure. and just a very chatty introvert. <laughs> There you go. So here's another question for you. Uh, in your process, do you prefer to pre-plan the structure or uh, do you use a free flow of ideas as you write? Um, initially, I go very much with a free flow of ideas and generally that's what I go for. Um, at times, I will have potential sequences of events in my notebooks, but I recognize that sometimes those don't work. That the conversations, the flow of events naturally move it towards something else. And the ending of, uh, and this is the cure, is not at all what I had envisioned in any of those. Uh, and there are times where I've written several chapters along what I realize is the rotten plot line, and I simply have to set them aside. I put them into a different folder, and I accept that that was good character work, but that is not what happened, and I'm just going to have to try again. You're so brave. <laughs> yeah. I spend a lot of time by myself. Yeah, but it is that that sequel folder, you know? You just put sequel uh, on there and... Uh, well, I think of it as alternate universe. Uh, okay, that works too. <laughs> okay, well, people are coming up with a couple of other questions. Um, maybe we'll get you to read your next segment. Um, now, as a disclaimer here, I understand that there's a bit of language, uh, if anyone, oh, gosh, gosh. <laughs> people may find offensive. Uh, so if you do, either just um, uh, um, maybe turn on mute for about five minutes here mm -hmm. and then turn back on and we should be good to go. The language will be a series of F-bombs expressed by a big, very angry former member of a punk band towards a school administrator. So very appropriately used. In some ways, in other ways, no. Uh, Allison's not known for being appropriate. <laughs> My kind of girl. <laughs> I'm a little scared of her, but she is a lot of fun. Uh, this is from Chapter 17. I studied Hannah slumped next to me in the molded plastic office chair. She'd been crying. Like me, she, when she cried, her face turned red and she immediately became furious. 
I got up and crouched in front of her. I said, they don't understand that you're mad. Hold on to the mat, stuff it inside, grind your fingers into your palms or your legs if you have to. You can scream as soon as we're out of here. She stared at me, then nodded. They came in. Because Hannah was under 12, her vice principal informed me, they had decided not to involve the police. That said, they wanted me to understand how seriously they were taking this incident. The girl's parents were furious, legitimately, and had demanded a formal apology and a restorative justice process before Hannah returned to the classroom. I looked over at her. Why? Not exactly a question. We take violence very seriously, Mrs. Winter. Ms., if we had realized how disturbed Hannah was, we would have requested a psychiatric assessment before she joined us. There was a distant journalistic part of my brain that recognized that the woman's horror was genuine enough. Hannah had flattened not one, but two classmates. The boy had lost a front tooth. The girl's nose was broken, apparently the result of more than a dozen rapid fire blows to the face. I said, I want you to acknowledge that she was provoked. We don't accept violence here, regardless of provocation. What do you propose then? Journalist voice. A two-week out-of-school suspension. Her return will be contingent on a therapeutic assessment, an individual behavior improvement plan, and a formal apology from Hannah to the students involved. I nodded. I expect you'll send me a document to that effect? She hesitated. I had assumed you wouldn't want a paper trail. Mm, do you expect me to find a therapist and complete this process in two weeks without official forms? Very well. I said, Hannah, let's go. Leaving furiously would have been easier if we'd had a car. It would have created an iron cage in which we could race away from the mess and both shriek once we were out of sight. I said, keep walking, grit your teeth. Hannah nodded. Her face was scarlet. She didn't look at me. I stopped. Hang on. And thought about it. Empty your bag. Her backpack contained her uneaten lunch, a pair of socks, a box of loose pens, a few scribblers, and three textbooks. What's important in your desk? In your locker. Do you have a locker? We don't have lockers. In your desk, then. I don't know. There's some stuff. Can you live without it? She shrugged. The textbooks lay on the sidewalk, soaking up filth from the not-quite-melted snow. I picked them up. Okay, stuff anything you want, want to keep, back in. She left the scribblers and her lunch on the ground. I picked them up, too. I missed the days when everyone had garbage cans all the time, in the alley, constantly accessible. As it was, I had to watch for the metal bunkers marked private behind each low-rise flat stack. There. I ran skidded on black ice, fell, got up, hurled the contents of my arms into the bin, and lost my purse. I had to crawl in after it. In the old days, I'd carried a backpack or a messenger bag, and it stayed strapped to my body, and there wasn't any problem at all. And I said, fuck that shit! Hannah stared at me. She was crying again, but almost without self-consciousness. Her expression was so flatly shocked that I wasn't sure she could feel the tears on her face. I always thought school was bullshit, I told her. I just hoped things might have changed by now. I'm sorry. 
We went back to the street and walked. You threw my books away. You don't need them. You're not going back there. They kicked me out. I'm kicking them out. That was some bullshit. You beat some bitch's face in and suddenly she's all innocent. Hannah said, she said if my family died, it was because of me. Well, I hope her nose stays crooked for the rest of her life. He said that maybe it was me that killed him. Show me your fist, I said. There was a gouge in it, the shape of adolescent front teeth. Now eh, we'd better clean that up. If it still looks bad tonight, we'll get you rabies shots. He had rabies? All boys have rabies, I told her. Why aren't you mad? She said. I don't look mad. We were walking faster. I dodged us away from high traffic streets, though it meant a longer route home. Too far. I changed course, taking us down another alley. You're like scary mad. You're goddamn right. But you aren't mad at me. I stopped and turned. No way. I hit those kids. I should hope so. We don't solve problems by hitting. I used to have a t-shirt, I said, back when we made our own t-shirts with markers. It said, I know violence isn't the answer. I got it wrong on purpose. Listen, a lot of the world is bullshit. They tell you that it's important to be a really nice person, especially if you're a girl and that's a giant fucking lie. Being nice turns you into ugly, miserable hamburger. If it's important, you go ahead and take the bastards apart. Okay. I'm loving this woman. Allison Winter, model parent. Yes, I do. I bet it was a fun character to write. Oh, she really was. She'll do anything. If she gets mad, she will scream at people. She reacts to people blocking her by taking off her clothes to terrify them. I do that too. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet. I'm, I'm a little too modest, but uh, boy, boy, is she fun. She, she, she is so much bolder than I am, and. It, it's utterly satisfying to let a character like that run wild. Mm -hmm. Is she maybe you vicariously? It, it sounds like you, <laughs> you have a really good, you know, like this is what I would actually say, actually do if I could. Well, partly, but of course, I also get to see all the consequences of her actions, which are she's not good at negotiating. She's not good at long-term thinking. And so she acts very much in the moment, very much out of anger. And while it's enormously satisfying to write, it's terrifying to contemplate actually doing because she has destroyed so many relationships. She's alienated from virtually everyone in her past although as the book goes on those people start showing up again and telling her to sort herself out because they have bigger problems mm -hmm. so a bit of self-sabotage going on there oh very very much she's i i, I love her but geez, she's a mess <laughs> <laughs> so another viewer question here I uh, do you have any advice about how to write about situations or, or life circumstances that you haven't directly experienced yourself? This writer says it's something that she finds challenging. Well, reading is incredibly important. Um, 
but also just meeting people and talking to them. And to a great extent, this is why I love teaching. And I love teaching where I do. GPRC has a lot of non-traditional students, people who've come back to school in their 30s and 40s, having worked in oil and gas, having done trucking, having fought in bars. And while I have myself never engaged in a bar fight, I've had plenty of students who were happy to tell me about how to conduct yourself in a bar fight. Um, it's, it's really about meeting people and listening to them. Uh, I try not to simply adapt other people's lives. I feel that those are their stories, but I get a sense of circumstances, of experiences, of other modes of life from the one I'm living. And I love to hear people tell me about things that they've done that I haven't. I think it's... I recommend teaching, honestly, people and, and teaching adults because people want to be heard and they will tell you the most amazing things. And, and I think that that life experience, it is a really important piece. And the other thing that you've really tagged on there, it's the listening. And the more we listen, the more we hear and the more we can share as a storyteller. That's very, very much. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know that we have any other questions coming in. I think uh, we have just a couple of minutes left. So if you do have a question that you'd like to ask Annette, please uh, type it in really fast and we'll be able to get to it. Um, the other really super important uh, question that I have to ask you is when will this book be available? Oh, oh the million dollar question. Uh, officially, <laughs> my release date is September 15th, but 2020 being what it is, I think there may be a small delay in that. It okay. will definitely be out this fall. Um, Amazon and because I'm big on independent booksellers, McNallyRobinson.com um, have it listed for pre-order. Uh, it'll be out before Christmas. Frighten your friends and family with it. Well, I think we'd actually make a lovely Christmas gift because who doesn't love to get a book uh, to well, read? It's a big one. It's yeah. double the size of my previous one, previous books. Well, you know, it's probably really good value. <laughs> it's a brick. <laughs> we love bricks. We can use them for uh, many, many, many things. Uh, but the best thing to use them for is to curl up in your new pajamas and uh, wait for the blizzard to come and just do a full day read or maybe two days in this case. And if we all go back to quarantine, we're going to need a lot of books. So stock up now while you can still go out in public. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But order it online or from your independent, get it from your independent bookstore for sure. Order it from the bookstores they could use the business and we've got some great ones um having come to alberta from manitoba and saskatchewan and then promptly moved to grand prairie i don't actually know all the best independent booksellers in edmonton and calgary because i'm never there mm -hmm. um but i'm sure that uh people in the writer's guild have their favorite bookstores and you should definitely go for independent if you can. Small Canadian businesses really keep small Canadian presses and Canadian writers going. They certainly do. 
So I think that's going to end our program this evening. Um, I would just like to thank you so much, Annette, for being with us tonight and sharing this amazing book. It's called And This Is The Cure, uh, by put out by Anvil Press and available mid-September or perhaps just a little bit beyond. Um, most definitely uh, at, available at your local independent bookstore or online. And again, do support the independents if you can. Uh, before we sign off, I'd also like to thank the Rosé Foundation for being the sponsor for this program and for this series. So everyone, thank you so much and take care. <laughs>